would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 118. I believe it's on pages 811 and 812 in the red Bibles and the chairs around you. 511. 511 and 512. Thank you. Psalm 118. We're continuing on in our sermon mini-series during the season of Advent and Christmas, looking at a number of the different psalms that point us to Jesus Christ, that foreshadow the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, for God's people. Although Psalm 118 is not usually thought of as being, quote-unquote, a messianic psalm, I think what we'll see is that it clearly can be put into that category. Listen as I read to you from Psalm 118. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is good and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be present here in these very moments, that you would help us, help us to remember, 
Help us to see that indeed you are good and that your steadfast love endures forever. Help us to see that from this portion of your word. Help us to see Jesus. And so, Father, help us to see your grace. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, it's that time of year again. Uh, It's a time when many people, perhaps some of you, uh, take some time out to uh, think back over this past year and everything that's happened. Uh, Things that have happened that are good in your life, maybe even some things that have been discouraging that have happened. Uh, Recounting what's taken place and looking back to those things, but also then looking forward to the year that is coming and perhaps some expectations that you have for the coming year. Sometimes we do that in the form of a end of the year newsletter that we stick into our Christmas cards to send out to people. Some of you have probably done that where you write a, a note and you, you recount things that have gone on in your life this past year, some good things, some discouraging things, maybe even talking about some things that are coming up in this year to come, some, some expectations that you have for what might be happening in the coming year. Sometimes it takes the form of what we call New Year's resolutions, where we reflect back on this past year and and maybe think about some things that we want to make changes about. And then we think ahead, we think forward, and we make some goals, we make some resolutions that we hope to keep in the year coming forward. It can take different forms and different shapes. But many of us, many people take the opportunity during this time to both look back and to look forward. Psalm 118 is a record of a psalmist doing just that very thing. We don't know the author of Psalm 118. Possibly it was David. Some scholars think it might have been Nehemiah or some other leader of Israel. It comes in a section of the Psalms from 113 to 118 that's often referred to as the Egyptian halals. Halal is the Hebrew word for praise. And and there are many things in this section of the Psalms, uh, many references and many specific uh, uh, mentions of God's people being in slavery in Egypt. The difficulties and the trials that they experienced and God delivering his people, God saving his people and bringing them to Mount Zion. In fact, Psalm 113 through 118 was specifically used in the Old Testament time period for the liturgy that surrounded the celebration of the Passover. Psalm 113 and 114 would be read before the eating of the Passover meal. Then Psalms 115 through 118 would be read after the Passover meal. So Psalm 118 was read at the very end of the Passover feast. And in Psalm 118, the psalmist takes some time to look back during a time of difficulty, a time of distress, a time of being enslaved by another nation. But he also sees in the midst of those difficult times, the steadfast and faithful love of the Lord for his people. And then he also looks forward. Uh, He looks forward to God's people gathering together for worship looking forward to God's salvation that was to come through a Savior. We need to hear Psalm 118 today. If you're a Christian, uh, you're one of God's people, then you need to hear Psalm 118 tell you about the grace and the hope of the Lord. 
You need to hear about Psalm 118 call you to put your trust and take refuge in the Lord above all things and to hear the call to celebrate God's steadfast love. But if you're with us today and you're someone who doesn't believe in God or not sure what you believe, you need to hear Psalm 118 as well. You need to hear about the grace and the hope that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ and the call to put your trust and to take refuge in him above all things. So today, let's look and see what the psalmist tells us as he looks back and what he remembers. And let's see what the psalmist tells us as he looks forward and what he's eagerly expecting. And then let's come at the end to think about what difference this makes for us today. So first of all, with the psalmist, let's look back. The, the psalmist begins and ends the psalm exactly where he should. Remembering and giving thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. You can see that in the beginning, verses 1 through 4, and at the end, verses 28 and 29. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. And then he ends the psalm by saying, You are my God, and I will give you thank I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. He begins and he ends exactly in the right place, like bookends at the beginning and end of the psalm, reminding us of the importance of seeing God's faithfulness and steadfast love to us. It's likely that the king or a priest would have led the people through Psalm 118. And you can almost hear it. The first four verses and the last two verses, you can almost hear the king calling on Israel, calling on various parts of Israel to respond. And then you can hear the congregation yelling out, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. And even at the end, you can see the leader would have said, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. And you can almost hear the congregation of God's people saying, verse 29 together, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist is repeating what he's saying here for emphasis to underscore its importance. It's meant to, to cause the people who would hear it to perk up and say, wait a minute, I'm hearing the same thing over and over again. This must be important. There must be something for me to listen to. And what is it that he repeats over and over and over again in these verses? It's the steadfast love of the Lord. Some of you know that that word in the Hebrew is a very special word. It's the word chesed. It's a special and it's a complex word. It means God's special, faithful, steadfast, covenant love for his people. It was a love that could never be earned or merited. A love that originated with the Lord and was unconditional and unchanging for his people. And the psalmist is using it here five times in these six verses, emphasizing and reminding the people how important it is to remember the steadfast chesed of the Lord is forever. 
It's important that he did that over and over again, that he began and he ended that way. Because as the psalmist reflects back and remembers, he's remembering that God's people have not always had it in a good way. They've gone through times of distress and great difficulty. That's where he goes in verses 5 through 13. The psalmist says, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. He's looking back. He's, he's reflecting. He's remembering that God's people were imprisoned. They were enslaved. They were not free, as he mentions at the end of verse 5. They were persecuted and treated badly by those who hated them, he says at the end of verse 7. The people were tempted to, to, to lose their trust and their hope in the Lord and to put their hope and their trust in human leaders and governing authorities, he says in verses 8 and 9. They had been surrounded by the nations in verses 10 through 12 and pushed hard even to the point that they felt like they were falling away from the Lord, he says in verse 13. But even in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of his distress, the psalmist remembers how it was still better to trust and take refuge in the Lord. I didn't know this, but as I was preparing uh, Psalm 118 this past week, I came across a commentator that said that Psalm 118 verses 8 and 9 are the exact middle of the entire Bible. Now, I didn't do the math on this, but he said that there are 31,174 verses in the Bible. Psalm 118 verses 8 and 9 are the 15,587th and 15,588th verses of the Bible. The exact middle of the entire Bible. Now, if that's true, how fitting it is that at the very middle of God's word would be a focus on reminding God's people to put their trust and to take refuge in their God. That word refuge has this, this idea of, of, of a large tree with branches and roots that come around you to protect you from a storm. Or from wings of a protector coming and enveloping you and keeping you safe. The psalmist is remembering in these verses that there is nothing that man can actually do to us when we trust in the Lord. That's what he's getting at in verses 6 and 7. What's the worst thing that man could do to you? Well, he could kill you. But what happens then? You get to go and be with the Lord. The psalmist is remembering at the end of verse 13 that it's the Lord. It is Yahweh. It is the Lord God Almighty that has helped him. And so he has no reason to fear. The psalmist is looking back and remembering how the Lord is always faithful to his promises. We see that in verses 17 and 18. 
It, it's, it's as if he's saying there that I will think back and I will recount of all the things that have gone on that have been very difficult, that have been distressing, that have been bad. But in the midst of those things, I remember that the Lord protected me and sustained me. I can even recall times, he says, when I was disciplined by the Lord, even severely, but I was never totally forsaken. I was never abandoned by the Lord. We're going to come back to this point in just a little bit, but let me give you a quick point of application at this point. As you think back over this past year, maybe even over the last two years, We've all had plenty of trials and difficulties and distressing things happening in our lives. Some of us personally and certainly all of us collectively. But as we think back over this past year or the the past two years and we reflect on all of the things that have been hard and trials and tribulations and difficulties and maybe even persecution that we felt. We're meant not just to think about those things, but in the midst of those difficulties and distressing things to remember the steadfast love of the Lord, the faithfulness of the Lord that does not stop. We should remember how it is always better to take refuge in the Lord, to put our trust in the Lord than anyone or anything else. That out of our distress, it is always good to call out to the Lord as the psalmist does. Because He is our God and He is our King. And in Him there is no reason to fear. That we would even sing with the psalmist verses 17 and 18. That we would remember that there are difficult things that have happened. And even maybe even feel like we've been disciplined severely. And yet, we will not die. Because our God lives and he will enable us to live. The psalmist is looking back and he's remembering these difficult times that the people of God have gone through. But he also looks forward. He he looks ahead to the future and what is coming. And you can see that in verses 19 through 27. He says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. This picture that we get in these verses 19 through 27 is the picture of a processional. The king or the leader of God's people is leading them up to the house of the Lord, to the temple, to the church, that they might worship the Lord God Almighty. Look at what he says in verse 19. He calls for the gates of the temple to be opened so that they can go through them and give thanks to the Lord. At the end of verse 26, he says, they will bless the Lord from where? From the house of the Lord. And the end of verse 27, we have this reference to the altar of the sacrifice found in the temple. The psalmist has been looking back and he has been remembering the Lord's steadfast love that endures forever. And he leads the people of God into the temple of God that they might worship the Lord God Almighty for his steadfast love. 
But did you notice that not everybody gets to go in? What's he say in verses 19 and 20? Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter it. There's a requirement to get into the house of the Lord. There's a, there's a requirement to be able to go in and to worship the Lord with the people of God. Only the righteous people get to go in. Only the righteous people get to go into the temple and worship and give thanks to the Lord. And that poses a significant problem. Because if the people were honest and genuine, who is righteous? Who is righteous that could go into the Lord? If righteousness, according to God's standard, is the condition for being able to worship the Lord and to be in His presence, then who can go in? It would be as if this morning as you came here into the church and you came in through the first uh, sets of doors and you came into the foyer and you noticed that these large sanctuary doors were all shut and we had signs all over them saying, only the righteous may enter. Who of you would be sitting in here right now? If you're honest, none of us, the preacher included, would be in the house of the Lord would be in the presence of the Lord. The psalmist actually understood not only the problem, but he also gave God thanksgiving for the solution. Look at what he says right after he mentions that the righteous are the ones who will enter into the house of the Lord. What does he say? It's as if he understood he is not righteous. He's not going to be able to go into worship. What does he say in verse 21? I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in his eyes, in our eyes, he says. He knew that only the righteous could get in. He understood that he wasn't righteous. He understood the people of God weren't righteous. And so he gives thanks to the Lord for the solution. He understood, in a sense, that there was salvation that the Lord would provide. That somehow the Lord would enable him to come in and worship. The Lord would make him to be one of the righteous. And what the psalmist was looking forward to, we as God's people now get to look back to. The arrival and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I mentioned earlier, Psalm 118 is not usually thought of as one of the main messianic psalms. But I would suggest to you that it most certainly is. And verses 21 through 27 clearly point to Jesus Christ. In fact, the New Testament and Jesus himself apply these verses to Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus addressing the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and other religious leaders, and he quotes verse 22, and he says, you're the builders, and I'm the stone that's become the cornerstone. In fact, Peter, speaking in Acts chapter 4, addressing rulers and elders and scribes, even the high priest, and the entire high priestly family says this, 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no, no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then Peter, again, in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, says that God's people are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, built on the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. Peter, Paul, Jesus himself all taught that Psalm 118 verse 22, the very source of the psalmist's salvation is Jesus Christ. The solution to the problem of needing to be righteous in order to enter into the house of the Lord is not that we earn that righteousness ourselves, but that we find it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do the righteous come into the sanctuary of God? It is not by their own righteousness. It is only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And did you notice what the psalmist says there in verse 23 and 24 as he as he starts to get a glimpse of the fact that God is the one who enables him to be in the house of the Lord. God is the one who declares him to be righteous through this future Messiah that would come. What does the psalmist do? He says, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous. He marvels. He marvels at the wonder of God's salvation and what he is doing for his people. You can see that this psalm points to Christ not only in verse 22 and how it's referred specifically by Jesus and the the writers of the New Testament about Jesus. But you can also see it pointed to us in verses 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, perhaps if we translated it a little bit differently, it might become even more clear. The word in verse 75, the Hebrew word, save us, is the word Hosanna. Look again at what they are saying. Hosanna, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are the words recorded by all four of the gospel writers of the people praising Jesus Christ as he rode into Jerusalem on his way to the cross. Do you see how remarkable this is? In the Old Testament, Psalm 118 was used by God's people during the festival of Passover, celebrating God's protection and God's saving of his people with the blood of a shed lamb in Egypt. And they would recite verses 25 and 26, looking forward to that one who would come. And then hundreds of years later, the one who the Passover pointed to, Jesus, arrived in Jerusalem during Passover and the people cried out, verses 25 and 26. The final and perfect Passover lamb had arrived in Jerusalem to make final and perfect atonement for the sins of God's people. 
We can go so far as to say the end of verse 27 that Jesus was the ultimate festal sacrifice that was bound not just with cords but nails and not just to the horns of the altar but the arms of the cross. And brothers and sisters in Christ, when we start to see how remarkable this is, then we can start to see the answer of so what? What difference does it make for us? One difference is that God's people should be moved to an overwhelming thankfulness because of the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. Just like the psalmist began and ended his psalms, his psalm, this should be our heart's cry. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Do you do you know the steadfast love of the Lord? The, the chesed of God, his infinite, steadfast and covenant love for his people. It is something that can only be experienced through trusting and taking refuge in Jesus Christ. It, it is something that can only be experienced by putting faith in him as the ultimate and greatest Lord and Savior. It can be experienced only by being in a relationship with King Jesus. And if you don't know that covenant love, then let today be the day. So that you can say with the psalmist and all of God's people, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And for those of you that do know the steadfast and faithful love of the Father, those of you who do know the cornerstone, who has been rejected by the world, those of you who understand that you are made righteous in God's sight, that you are given entrance into the household of God to praise and to worship Him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is your response to this incredible plan of salvation? Is it with the psalmist? This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in my eyes. Are you moved to worship? Certainly, when we think about worshiping the Lord, we, we rightly talk about private worship, that we are to worship the Lord throughout the week ourselves, reading His Word, spending time communing with Him in prayer, and, and certainly together as, as God's people to worship corporately. But our whole life is supposed to be about worship of the Lord God Almighty. Every area of our lives should be focused on glorifying and enjoying the Lord. Sunday to Saturday, not just Sunday, in our vocations, in our studies, in our research, in our dealing with patients, as we work in the fields, in our homes, when we're driving and going to the store. What are the ways that you need to do a better job of living every moment for the glory and the enjoyment of the Lord? In response to the, to the wonder of His grace and love to you that is shown in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. To the degree that you have experienced the chesed, the covenant steadfast love of the Lord. He calls you to go out and to glorify Him and enjoy Him in every part of your life. There's a second takeaway, a second so what. Something else that we can take away from Psalm 118. The question is this, how will we respond when trials and distress and hardships come in life? Whether they are physical or mental hardships, whether the circumstances of our life become difficult or even to the point where we feel like they're going to be unbearable, dealing with relational 
conflict, dealing with persecution from friends and family and even governing authorities. When we feel surrounded by the troubles of the Lord and surrounded by our own sin, will we answer like the psalmist? In those moments, it is better to take refuge in the Lord. In those moments, it is better to trust the Lord than anything else or anyone else. That we would even be able to say it is better to take refuge in and trust the Lord than to get relief from my trouble. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? How can the circumstances of my life be more important to me than the Lord himself? I may feel pushed hard. I may even be, uh, feel like I'm uh, at the point of falling. But the Lord will help me. In the midst of distress and hardships and trials and even persecution, will we say that it's better to find refuge in the Lord? And think about it this way. How did the psalmist get to the point of saying verses 28 and 29? How does he get to the point of saying, You are my God and I will give thanks to you. I will give thanks to you because your good and your steadfast love endures forever. He was saying those words, not just in the midst of a season of some trials. Maybe a few years or even a decade of dealing with pain and suffering and persecution. No, he was saying those words as he was reflecting back to the people of God having endured trials of 400 years of bone crushing suffering and persecution. Slavery in Egypt, a feeling perhaps utter abandonment by God that he gave them over to some foreign and pagan nation. And yet... He comes to the end of his psalm and he remembers the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And as I read those words again and again and again, it always reminds me of Paul's familiar and oft quoted words from Romans 8. And yes, we say it a lot here at Trinity, but that's because we need to remember it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death. And then he throws this one in nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this, brothers and sisters, is where the truth of God's word comes face to face with the reality of our lives. In my distress, in my worry, in my anxiety, in my fears, in my doubts, in my hardships, where will I finally land? Will it be in the refuge and trust of the Lord his promise to never leave or forsake us, to always be at our side so there's no fear or despair.
that when we're surrounded by people who hate us or persecute us or dismiss us, that we too would join our voices with the psalmist and say, you are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol, I will praise you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, this is one portion of your word, as with so many that we say we believe, help our unbelief. So many ways that we get tripped up and over-concerned about the cares of the world. And we know that so many of those things are not unimportant, and yet, Father, help them to not become the most important things to us. Help us in the midst of joy and sadness to be able to give you thanks because you are good. Because your steadfast, covenantal, faithful love that we see demonstrated in your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be the song of our heart. We pray this in his name. Amen.